you have a Bible this morning, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 28, the very last sermon from this series in the book of Acts. Cheering, cheering, don't cheer. Um, it's, been a good, it's been a good run here. Uh, let's pray together and we'll ask for God's help, okay? Uh, Father, we are grateful that um, you, through your word, have spoken to us, you've challenged us, you've encouraged us. Uh, you've set some things before us that we um, needed to hear, uh, some things that certainly we've wanted to hear, and probably some things that we didn't want to hear, but nonetheless, God, it's what you have spoken to us. And so I pray that as we look at this last chapter today, uh, you would help us and continue to do the things that you've done so far. Um, continue to speak to your people. Continue to make us who you want us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the sides of the tech booth back there. Feel free to go grab one. If you're a user of the Bible app, you can find our live event and follow along um, with the scriptures and sermon notes and so forth. And so uh, here in the uh, book of Acts, uh, just catch us up to speed on wh where we've been. Just one more time. Here's a little map. I didn't bring the laser pointer today because there are not that many spots involved. Okay. I just, just, we're on the left side of the map up here. We have seen Paul in Malta, and they're going to make their way up the coast to Rome. That's the, the status of, of Paul here. Um, and, and really, what I want to do is kind of preach the chapter backwards, if you will. I want to start at the end uh, and then uh, make our way, uh, make our way um, back to uh, the front there. Chapter 28, verse 30. Um, he lived there in Rome, okay, so he sailed to Rome. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense, um, and meaning he had a house that he rented uh, because he was a tent maker and because he had probably some other support, he was able to pay for this. Um, he's still under Roman guard, but there's a, a substantial amount of freedom there. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's really where I um, want to uh, focus our attention and let that actually frame out the rest of the chapter as we'll, we'll uh, pick back up and go through it, is that, that Paul spends his time in Rome and he's, he's spending his time welcoming anybody who comes. So he is not afraid. And this is such a good word for us today in light of kind of our cultural melee that's happening and all the craziness that is our, our, our world and our discourse and culture right now. Paul was not afraid to welcome any conversation. Like, there was nobody that scared him. Why? because he knew what he knew. He knew that Jesus was in charge of the world, that he had died and he had rose again. And I mean, what, what else do you need to know at that moment? But here's what I'm saying. Like Paul believed in the free market of ideas and he thought Jesus had the best possible answers to the most important questions. What a great thing for us to be convinced of as well. Paul, he lived there two years at his, his expense and welcomed all who came to him. And when they showed up, what did he do? He went about proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without, uh, without hindrance. So those two things, proclaiming the kingdom, teaching about the Lord Jesus. I just want to put those two things in context, and then we'll uh, talk about the, the two big truths I think that we pull from this chapter. 
Um, It's interesting that Luke says it in the order that he does. He didn't say teaching about the Lord Jesus and proclaiming the kingdom. What does he start with? He starts with proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus. And I think that's really critical for us in our mindset because in Western Christianity, um, there are moments where um, we privatize our religion instead of personalize our religion. Are you with me? We've done this little illustration before, but I just want you to ponder with me this. Uh, when you go through the airport and you go uh, and you got to get something fast to eat uh, and you pass by Subway because the line's too long and there ain't no way you're stopping at Chick-fil-A because the line's way too long. Starbucks only has three-day-old sandwiches. And so you pass by the place that has the pizza, right? And inevitably, if it's Pizza Hut or pick your favorite you know, like you can order a big slice, which you're like, how long has that been sitting out? But then they, they pull off the fresh baked stuff and they're about that big around. Everybody with me? And they call them what? A personal pan pizza. But really the truth is, is that they're not personal. Why? Because if you sit down across from your spouse or your kid or whatever, and they try to eat that with you, what do you say? Get away from my pizza. There's only that much left, right? Really what that is, is a private pan pizza. Are you with me? Like, it is mine and mine alone. And I want to use that little picture as something to think about when it comes to um, our faith, the kingdom. The reason why I think it's critical that we hear the order that Luke announces this in, Paul went about um, proclaiming the kingdom, teaching about the Lord Jesus, is we have a tendency to reverse those. And in doing so, the temptation is to privatize our faith. This is mine. Please stay away. When, when he starts with the kingdom of God, it is a declaration that our faith can be very personal, but there is no way that it can be private. Because it, that, that declaration of the kingdom of God dislodges us from the, from the center of the story. It dislodges us from the, 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 the uh, um, uh, privatization that is so tempting to us to go, oh, well, this is just me and Jesus. It puts us in a larger story. When he starts with the kingdom, that's where he starts. And that, that's, where, that's what I want to um, think about as we think about uh, the two big truths. The first one is, well, you and I, we get to live in a very, very big story. We get to live in a big story, the story about the kingdom, the story about a king who looks out on the world, sees its brokenness, enters into that brokenness, and through uh, taking on that brokenness, brings wholeness to people. That's the story that we get to live in. And that's the story that keeps us from privatizing that faith, privatizing that that experience. And yes, it's personal, but it's not private. We live in a big story. And I just want to point out some pieces of this just how big this story is. Uh, first of all, it is big enough to include Jews and Gentiles. Can we back up to chapter, tw- uh, excuse me, chapter 28, verse 23? Um, when they, that's the Jews, had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. Previously, he had interacted with the Jews and said, hey, listen, I'm in town. I just want you to know. And they're like, well, we hadn't heard anything bad about you. Sounds like a plan. And here they are coming to him in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to what? to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said. Others disbelieved and disagreeing among themselves. They departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying um, to your fathers through Isaiah, the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes. They have closed 
lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles because they will listen. And so you had some Jewish people who come to Paul, and he speaks to them about the kingdom, and he tells them about Jesus, and some believe, and others are like, no, nah, man, I'm not, no, 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 no. And Paul says, look, you knuckleheads over here, I, God said this was going to happen, and, and, and so now the gospel is also going to the Gentiles. The story that you and I live in, the kingdom that you and I are a part of, the, 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 play, the place where we get to live, the citizenship which we get to call our own, is a story big enough to include Jews and Gentiles. And listen, that cannot, the miracle of that cannot be overstated. Why? Because here, here God is bringing two ethnic groups who should have nothing to do with one another under the same banner. Can, can we translate that to 2019? Here God is bringing two ethnic groups that shouldn't have anything to do with one another under the same banner, the banner of the kingship of Jesus. The miracle of this cannot be overstated. And it was worth fighting for. It was the first big church fight in Acts chapter 15, if you remember about that. Do you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? All this... Jews and Gentiles get brought together, and the story that God is telling is a story so big and so powerful that it brings these two ethnicities together. Um, it, it gives them something greater that unites them than, than that which may divide them. I think that's a really powerful thing for us to think about as we carry forward. But secondly, it's a big story in the, in the sense it is big enough to span geographies. It's a big enough to span geographies. Um, Philip, can we put the map back up there? I'm just sorry to backtrack on you here. But if you're under 12 years old in here, I want you to track along with me here. Um, Acts, the book of Acts for all of you kids under 12, uh, and the rest of you, you can just listen in to their smartness, okay? But uh, it, the book of Acts covers three different continents. Now, if you're under 12 years old, can we guess which three? Let's go ahead and rule out Antarctica. Okay, not Antarctica. But, okay, give me one, Josiah. Okay, that's close, but the gospel hasn't gotten there yet. Three different continents. Tell me. Texas, its own continent, which I think is amazing. Texas forever, baby. But the gospel hasn't gotten there yet. It was taken Alamo in 1836 and General Samuelson to make. No, I'm just kidding. Not just teasing about that. You got one right there? Go ahead. I, I got lights in my eyes, so you may have to wave at me. Asia. Okay. So does everybody see the part that says Galatia in the kind of top right corner? That's a part of Asia called Asia Minor. It's modern day Turkey, but that's a part of Asia. So that's one. The gospel has hit Asia. That's true. Okay, let's, let's find a second one. Yes. Tell me. Europe. Europe. Okay, so all of this stuff up on the, the middle top and, the, and going left there, that's all Europe. So the gospel has hit Europe. Amazing. Last one. Got a third one? Africa. That's exactly right. That's exactly, we did it. We did it. All three continents there are touching. And so um, if you'll remember down here in the bottom right corner, um, Philip 
uh, witness to the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8. And, and in that story, the gospel goes to Africa. So the story that you and I are a part of is a story big enough to span geographies. Three of the primary continents uh, where the population of humanity was at the time are touched by the gospel. And it rapidly expanded into all of those and is still present today. Now just think about that. You and I are a part of, before the internet, before Twitter, uh, before uh, social media, any other social media platform, before telephones or telegraphs or anything else, you and I are a part of a story th that, that would send this message to three different continents. Unbelievable. Thirdly, uh, it, it is big enough to unite strangers. So it's big enough to include Jews and Gentiles, big enough to span geographies, big enough to invite, uh, to unite strangers. Look, if you will, uh, back in, in, in chapter 28, let's start in verse 13. And um, from there, he's talking about the way that they got to Rome. From there, uh, we made a circuit, arrived at Regium, and after one day, a south wind sprang up. On the second day, we put in there, or we came to Putioli, and there we found, don't miss this, 14. There we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Epius and the Three Taverns to meet us on seeing them. Don't miss this. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Here are these strangers in Rome. Paul's never been to Rome. He knows that he's got to get there because Jesus has told him and then Jesus sent an angel and told him to tell him. Um, but Paul's never been there. But yet there's some, there are some Christians there. There are some brothers there. There are some people there. And what does he say about them? That somehow, in some way, there was some spiritual connection, some soul-level connection. And what happened? Uh, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. It is the, the story that you and I are a part of, the story of the kingdom of God, is it is enough, it is big enough to unite strangers. How many of you ever had that experience where you met somebody, you figure out that they were a person of faith, and it's almost like you sensed it beforehand because like somehow your soul was kind of connected to them? Maybe it was on a mission trip. Um, where you're, you're on a team here and you're getting kind of tied in with them and like your heart is just connected to them. There's something about that, right? It is a story big enough um, to unite strangers. Hearts get knit together and it proves that there is more to it than just familiarity. So again, kids, just real quick, um, how many Christians do you think there were in Rome at about the time Paul got there? There's about a million people in Rome at the time, but how many Christians, kids, just a guess? Out of a million people, how many are Christians? How many? Actually, just a little bit less than that. There might not have been a hundred Christians in Rome at that time. There were somewhere between 25 and 50,000 Jews. Uh, but the gospel, Paul was one of the first people with the message of Jesus to, to get there. And so there may not have been more than a hundred Christians. And so here you've got this collection of people and Paul shows up and it says, man, I saw them. I saw what was happening and what, what? Oh, I took courage. I thanked God and I took courage. That's a story that's big enough to live in. And lastly, it's a story that is big enough to be carried on by us. It's a story that's big enough to be carried on by us. What does that mean? Well, the, 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 the way that the book ends, um, he just says, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense, welcomed all who came to him, proclaimed the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And then the book just ends. W what happened? 
Do we know? Anybody? I know. Here's kind of what we uh, know from some church history is that Paul eventually, it, it appears he was released, um, did some more traveling, um, and then ultimately was arrested again <clears throat> and martyred uh, uh, under Nero there. That's kind of what church history tells us. Um, but the way that Luke tells the story, like it just comes to an end and everybody's like, well, what happens to the church? Like what happens to the good news? What happens to this message? And most commentators think that Luke didn't do that on accident. He put the period at the end of that sentence on purpose. Why? Because he wants you and me to know that the, that the kingdom of God does not hinge on Paul. It hinges on Jesus. And then, then furthermore, that the advancement of the kingdom also doesn't hinge on Paul, but hinges on people who are willing to lay their lives down for the sake of the good news. It's big enough, it is a big enough story to be carried on even by us. It is a story that you and I get to carry. It is a story in some sense that is too big to fail. So he entrusts it with us. It's a big story. Okay, so he went about proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So we've talked about the big story. Let's talk for just a second about the big Savior. Here's, here's the second big truth is that there is a big Savior. Uh, I want to point out here just three things. Number one, Jesus can save the religious people and irreligious people. Why is that important? Because we have both of those in our lives, and at times we may be both of those different people. We are people... Religious who uh, uh, think that our salvation is going to be found through moral conformity <clears throat> to, to some, some moral standard, whatever that may be, be it cultural or otherwise. We think that, that somehow God is going to be uh, in favor of us, going, going to want to draft us for his fantasy team, so to speak, because of our moral conformity. We, we are earning, if you will, um, th- this acceptance by God. And Jesus saves us from that line of thinking. He can save us. This is the, the message of the Jews here when he speaks um, in, in verse 23 and 24, and he's expounding them, testifying to them of the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced of what he said and, and others did not believe. He's speaking to religious people and he wants them to know that their works, that their earning, that all will not save them, that instead what they need to do is be consumed by the love of God and, and devastated by that in the best possible way and then liberated from their self-righteousness. And some of us are in that place today. We think, oh man, God must be really happy with me because I showed up after staying up late for the Astros game. Here I am, 8.30 service. I, I'm some, maybe it's not that specifically, but you, you think to yourself, hey, listen, God's really kind of lucky to have me on his side. And God wants to liberate you from that. He wants to set you free from that. In part, that's self-destructive because <clears throat> the, the more you live with that lie, uh, uh, <clears throat> the, the more uh, important you make yourself to be and the less important you make others to be. And Jesus lived the exact opposite of that. And so in part, that's self-destructive, but also it's, it's highly offensive to God because what you're saying is, God, I know you're not sufficient, therefore, I, you want me on your team. So here I am to help you. I'm happy to step in and back clean up. Oh, you need a guy from the bullpen? Just... Call me. God can save the religious. 
But he also can save the irreligious. Some of you are in here and you didn't grow up around this place. Uh, you didn't grow up with this kind of thinking. You didn't grow up. Moral conformity was not your issue. Instead, you, you kind of took the path of self-discovery. You can't tell me what to do. Uh, I'm going to go about my business and I'm going to save myself through self-discovery. And I'm telling you, uh, that expresses it ways, itself in all sorts of ways that are self-destructive as well. And Jesus can save you from that. You feel like, oh man, I can't believe and believe I showed up at church. I've got great news. No matter where you've been, no matter where you've come from, no matter the baggage you have, no matter the situation you're in, the circumstance that you've just come out of, whatever it is, Jesus can save you. Um, and, and, and if you find yourself, would describe yourself as irreligious, he can save you from that too. From your sin that expresses itself in ways that are uh, very different from, from those who try to earn God's favor, you would just turn away from God and go, no, I don't, I don't need you, God. Jesus can save the religious and the irreligious. Paul speaks of this when he says this salvation in verse 28, this salvation of God has been sent off to the Gentiles, those who are irreligious, those who don't, didn't grow up around this. Secondly, uh, we've got a big savior who can save both kinds of people. Secondly, though, uh, Jesus can heal our sickness. Look at verse seven. Now, uh, so Paul is on Malta here, okay, everybody? He's back on the island. He hadn't made it to Rome yet. Again, we're kind of going backwards in time. But in verse 7, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, a guy named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. And when uh, this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Did you see that? Jesus can heal our sickness. Whatever it is, whatever your situation is, whatever your problem is, Jesus can heal our sickness. And I just want to say a couple things about this. Number one, um, we, we can't hide our sickness. This guy had fever and dysentery. Yours may look very different than that. Uh, it, it may be a secret addiction or some other sickness uh, that, that you have kind of in you. Jesus is in the business of healing that. Uh, you can't hide it from him. Furthermore, the only way that he heals is when we bring it to him. So if you're here and you're thinking, oh man, if anybody ever found out, well, Jesus already knows. And the only way that you receive his healing is through that. S secondly, on this, uh, not only can you not hide it, it doesn't surprise him. People living in those days got sick. Paul didn't walk in and was like, oh my goodness. In fact, he was so unsurprised by the whole thing that what did he do? How did, how did he uh, minister to him? He, he put his hands on him, right? He laid his hands on him. This is, this is not a, you know, typically when you're shocked or surprised, what do you do? You draw back. What did Paul do? He moved forward. So, so with Jesus, he is not surprised by it. And, and I love this. He just, he loves to give healing and wholeness away. Jesus does. He loves to give it away. So he says, uh, all of these people on the island who had diseases, they came and were cured. He just continually does this. This is what he does. He wants to bring wholeness. He wants to bring wholeness to your life. He wants to bring wholeness to your family. He wants to bring wholeness to our culture, to our neighborhoods, to our street, to our cul-de-sac, to our classroom, to our school, uh, to the soccer team, to whatever. He wants to bring wholeness. And guess who he uses to bring that wholeness? Paul, right? And you and me. And you and me. Jesus can heal our sickness. Now, I, I think that's fantastic news. And I think this, this um, sums the rest of this up and we'll move toward communion. Look, look back at chapter 28, verse 1. 
After we were brought safely through, remember the shipwreck, okay, they, they landed on the island of Malta. We learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Remember, this is kind of early fall, mid to early fall, and so it was chilly. Verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Had a shipwreck, and now snake bit. Verse 4, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has not escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire, suffered no harm, and they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time, saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. <laughs> so, Here's what I want to say, this last thing. Jesus, he can save the religious and the irreligious. He can heal our sicknesses. And he can deal with snakes. Okay, you good down there? Okay. He can deal with snakes. Paul was serving, right? Grabbing um, grabbing firewood, right? And putting it on the fire and a viper came out and grabbed him by the hand. We're going to do this. Okay, here we go. Ready? Oh, just kidding. You were still scared. That's good. <laughs> Kids, can you imagine though? Paul's trying to help people and a snake jumps out and grabs him on his hand. Right? Right? And he's, hey, I just survived a shipwreck. What's the deal? And what did they keep waiting on? They kept waiting on him to die. And what happened? He didn't. He didn't. That which should have killed him didn't because of the power of God. Can we say that one more time and think about a little bit more than just a snake? That which should have killed him didn't because of the power of God. And what did he do? Do you remember the story? He shook it off into what? Into the fire. He shook the snake off into the fire. Is there another snake that's going into a fire somewhere else that you can think of? Is there another place where we, in our minds, the story that we live in has a snake that gets put ultimately into a fire? Listen, that which should have killed him did not. That which should have killed him did not because of the power of God. Sin should have killed him and it did not because of the power of God. The snake should have killed him, but it did not because of the power of God. And he shook it off into the fire. Here's the crazy part. The, the islanders were right. This man is a, what did it say? This man is a, a murderer, a murderer. 
They were right. He was, wasn't he? He was. But in some ways, they were still wrong because no longer was he that. And so he shook it off into the fire. And listen, listen, one more time. That which should have killed him did not. And that's what we come to celebrate at communion, is that you and I, we've been set free. We've shaken it off. Not by our own power, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Because he took the venom, if you will, of sin and shame on himself and in himself. Because he um, let it come to him, on him and in him. And because he let it consume him, you and I then can shake it off. We, you and I, we are forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us. You and I have a new life because of what Jesus has done for us. You and I. What should have killed us does not because of the power of God. And that's what we come to remember when we come to communion. We'll take this wafer and we'll remember that Jesus is in the business of bringing wholeness to our lives and wholeness to those around us through us. We'll take the cup and we'll drink it. And we'll remember that Jesus is the one who um, has died in our place and for our sins. And our freedom and our forgiveness and our life is not based on our performance. It's not based on some circumstance that you and I find ourselves in. It is based on what Jesus has done for us and our trust and hope in that. You and I have the opportunity to remember that what should have killed us does not because of the power of God. So let me pray and we'll have time to celebrate communion here.